0: to the Comfort Monk Podcast. Today's guest, we've got Paul Bowers of uh, Brutal South. He's also uh, just releasing a new record uh, under his group Camellias. And uh, he's got a book coming out in the next year or two. Uh, So stay tuned. We talk about a whole lot of stuff from teacher labor organizing to uh, the honeybees in in south carolina um to his musical journey and uh i think you'll really enjoy it have a good time enjoy the episode bye
1: Well, um, I guess it started with my friend Gardner and me. Um, He's a Gardner Beeson, which is the guy I grew up with in Somerville, one of my best friends. Um, And he started playing upright bass when we were in middle school. He might have actually started elementary, and uh, he was just a tall-for-his-age kid, so I think he kind of naturally wound up playing the bass because none of the other kids could reach it. And uh, so... He had that, and when I left for college, I only brought my acoustic guitar with me after playing metal in high school, and um, so we both went to University of South Carolina and just started working on music together. So, um, yeah, I guess the the first thing that we called the Camellias was really just Gardner and me um, working on songs together.
0: Awesome. I have to ask, because I ask a lot of people this that had high school bands, uh, what was the name of your first band?
1: It was called Up for Air, which uh was named by our singer who was on the swim team <laughs> that's actually really good that's definitely like in the the upper tier of high school band names i'm not yeah I'm not mad about it i think it I think it was pretty uh yeah it was um it w- so I grew up in Somerville in the era of like emo Metalcore kind of mid to late 2000s that was that was pretty big down there and um so all the you know hardcore shows were about getting into a small concrete room where uh like uh angsty suburban teens could could punch down punch dance their rage out um so there's a lot of that going on but then the the guys i was in a band with were really into um like breaking benjamin at the time so we were kind of more leaning toward that but then we were throwing a, a a breakdown to uh follow the trend and you know g- give the people what they want That's awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah I, r- I remember those days a lot of concrete block uh VFW
1: halls and yeah. stuff like that. The Legion Hall in Somerville was big. Yeah. And like oh, yeah. Uh, church youth rooms. They just you know there aren't a lot of venues when you're in um the suburbs, especially for all ages stuff. So yeah, it ends up being a lot of yeah veterans halls, uh, church activity rooms, um, a little bit before my time, but there was a big, big scene at the bookstore in downtown Somerville.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Um, did y'all ever play, um, the like Christian extreme, uh, music circuit? I know that was pretty big
1: down here. We we didn't go anywhere outside of Somerville. It was it was pretty small time.
0: <laughs> gotcha.
1: Yeah, that's
0: awesome though. Yeah, yeah, so so you all had this kind of like shared history um, of playing together. Well, no, I didn't. Light.
1: I didn't play with Gardner back then. That, that was some different dudes from my my church youth group growing up. Oh, gotcha. Yeah.
0: yeah. Nice. Well, cool. So uh, you're you're going to USC um, play music, and uh, I don't actually know this about you. Did you go to USC for Journalism or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Journalism major, uh, Spanish minor. Nice. So, uh, was was music
0: at this time sort of like the fun thing that you were doing, or was it more of like this is my main artistic output while I'm?
1: Um, I never really had professional ambitions for it. Um, I will say I I think our our lives may have crossed inadvertently in college I, I took a Spanish class with uh Donald Josie who I think yes. played music with you yeah so that was the first time I heard of the Chilton's we had we had some kind of a Spanish class together like <laughs> freshman or sophomore year so that was that was our first time when when our paths sort of glanced off each other without us actually meeting <laughs>
0: that's awesome yeah yeah uh, there's a very a very real chance that he's the one that uh turned me on to brutal self actually
1: Oh, that's yeah. It might be, man. Um, small state dude.
0: Yeah. Um, small. Yeah. I won't, I won't bore people with going into the, the six degrees of separation too long, but, uh, yeah, we definitely run in a lot of the same, same circles.
1: Yeah. So I, I um, I wrote songs in college, just, um, I don't know, not with any particular ambition, but, um, I was listening to Josh Ritter a lot at the time and, of appreciated his approach and his uh storytelling kind of mode of songwriting and uh so early on i was trying to do things that uh were sort of you know what would josh ritter do type songs um so that's that's where a, a lot of the early stuff came from
0: awesome so um so what was y'all's first uh recording experience like was it um, I, kn- I know uh, from reading some of uh, your writings that you're a big fan of John Darnell and his sort of approach to really like of the minute, uh, you know, songwriting and song recording and so on. So what was kind of like the first, um, the first time that Camellias like laid down a track, what was the the impetus behind it?
1: Well, we recorded some things in my apartment in Columbia Um and it was mostly just to to practice and so we'd have you know recordings to listen to later to kind of remember what speed to play things and uh, just practice on our own time but I just had a um, one of those handheld zoom microphones that has the built-in you know SD card thing and it was pretty nice I was was pretty glad to have it but I would just sort of set that in the middle of the room and um, yeah probably the first time we tried to record something we were uh, getting ready to play for um, a friend of ours who was doing an album release. And uh, she had offered to sing some harmonies on some of our songs. So we were just practicing together. And um, yeah. So I think at least one of the songs on this, this new album I'm putting out is just something we re- we recorded at the apartment that just was one mic in the middle of the room and uh, turned out. Okay. I think it's uh Yeah but it's, it's, it's like listening to it now. It's, it's a really sweet kind of memory.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask um, who, you know, there's, there's a, a female sort of voice on some of the songs. I was going to ask about who that was and what their relationship was um, to the project.
1: Yeah, that was. Um, so the first, yeah. One of our first recordings that would have been with Haley Dryce, who's a songwriter and she had just put out a solo album of her own. And um, I think she knew Gardner because they were both in the music school together. So um, and she's great. She's also a really talented violin player. And um, yeah, so she, uh, we just sort of twisted her arm into singing a couple of our songs with us. Um, yeah. She was never like officially part of the band per se, but um, yeah, there, there are just a few things in that album that I'm putting out now that are just like, people who joined in along the way. And um, yeah, it was really sweet to go back and listen to those and then reach out to them and say, Hey, are you cool with me putting this out in the world? <laughs> Good excuse to catch up with, uh, with some old friends.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So um, ha- what is the the full span of uh, this new record uh, in terms of like time, time bookends, I guess.
1: Yeah. So uh, the, the earliest recording I was able to come across was from 2009 and then the most recent one I recorded like uh this month 2021 so yeah it's like a it's like a 12-year time span and um it starts during like my sophomore junior year of college and uh then goes through uh getting married uh moving back to Charleston area um working three jobs, having three kids. Uh, yeah, just like a lot of life changes. And um, yeah, so it's it's a it's a bunch of little time capsules along the way there.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I like that you can sort of track the time on your record. Um, some of the songs have like, you know, dates in the title, or at least one of them does. Yeah. Um, and then there's a song with two different versions, like an older version, a new version um that's really cool to sort of see the the progression and stuff and that that's all to say though it's it's kind of amazing how cohesive everything is in the end um do you feel like there's like an arc to the last uh I guess what 12 years of writing It, it seems like there's there's some themes that go through the entire thing
1: yeah I, I didn't have any plan in mind as I was doing it. Um, and like the process of assembling all this was basically just digging up old like flash drives and um, voice recordings and things that I had saved in Google Drive and just kind of putting it all in a big folder where I had like 50 songs Um and then sort of winnowing it down to the things that I thought were suitable for public consumption, you know? (laughs) Um, and, uh, yeah. So like there, there's some stuff in there. That's just like sort of a rough demo. There's like a bunch of phone recordings, but, um, yeah, thematically, I don't know. I, I've always kind of liked, um, Hmm. Yeah. I've liked writing, purely fictional songs sometimes. Like I, I was uh, for a long time, pretty anxious about writing anything directly confessional. So I would just sort of uh, make up a story. Um, so like, there's a song on there called home at the end of the earth. That was definitely from the era of me just trying to write a Josh Ritter song. <laughs> so like he, he had this song called uh, the temptation of Adam. That's, um, it's a love song set in a, a nuclear missile silo during World War III. And uh, just about two people who get assigned to work in this, this place and they fall in love. And uh, so it's just, you know, I thought, well, I'll, I'll write my own love song set in a, a ridiculous environment. So uh, mine was set in an Antarctic research station. And um, So there are songs like that that like, really don't have any direct bearing I kind of like I I was I was using them sometimes to talk about something that was going on in my life, like um, you know, and and that song, uh, you know, it's it's about a a couple who go to the end of the earth to be together. And uh, my brother had just gotten married and moved to California with a a girl from the upstate of South Carolina, and I was just thinking about the um, the devotion and what an act of love that is to follow someone to a place you've never been. Um, so in an oblique way without being too, um, like directly writing a song about <laughs> my, my brother and his wife, I was, I was just sort of thinking about like, what a beautiful thing that was, um, through that song. So yeah, sometimes I was, I was processing things that way. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that there are clear through lines necessarily, but I do write a lot about um, Christian faith and kind of what I believed at different times and uh, what I wished I still could believe. Um, So it's, uh, yeah, you definitely hear just different stages of my kind of development and like my um, kind of moving away from a lot of the evangelical trappings that I, I hung on to for a long time. So, um, that's a big part of it too. Yeah,
0: I was, uh, while you were saying that, I it, it me thinking about, uh, the last, the last song on the record, um, all my worship. And I was thinking you were talking about not being confessional. And I was thinking as far as like voice goes, that one, I think captures most your voice through what you do with Brutal South. Um, and I've mentioned Brutal South a couple of times, uh, we could talk about it in a minute um but for for the listeners uh paul does a weekly newsletter called brutal south um it has a wide range of topics from um southern brutalist architecture to southern politics especially a lot of educational politics and um death penalty politics uh as well as stuff about religion and faith and kind of the the intersection of uh you know right-wing kind of evangelical christian you know christianity versus sort of the more like leftist sort of uh you know christian anarchist or christian socialist sort of uh points of view so just just so we have some context so i don't keep talking about brutal south and people don't know what i'm talking about
1: yeah thanks for hyping me up man (laughs) it's excellent Um, um Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, um, I I think, so the, the, the genesis of that was, um, I don't know when the last time was that you were inside of a Chick-fil-A ai it's been, it's been a while, uh, since I was inside any restaurant, but like, you know, they, they have that instrumental music usually playing in the dining room and it's, um, it's like music, you know, it's just an instrumental track, but, um, I worked in a Chick-fil-A, uh, after my senior year of high school and, uh, yeah, there I there were just sort of like sort of schmaltzy uh wordless versions of praise and worship songs that I had grown up singing in church that were just sort of like burned into my brain from that summer and um yeah, it's 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 like a very dated reference but um like a lot of the lines from the verses in that song are lines from popular you know christian praise and worship songs of the 90s so like i will give you all my worship i will give you all my praise that was like a big anthem- anthemic song um i am a friend of god was like this sort of like power pop ballad thing that's like just a big earworm and it's like all these little phrases that like if you grew up in it you're definitely gonna you're gonna catch all the easter eggs <laughs> like it's it's pretty obvious what i'm what i'm lifting from there um but yeah, like I was thinking about that experience of like going into a Chick-fil-A and, and how that sort of triggers a lot of memories. And the the memory for me is of singing those songs with complete sincerity and with my whole heart, um, which is harder to do because I'm more jaded now. But um, yeah, it, it when when I start sort of subconsciously singing along with something that I can't fully endorse mentally anymore, um, I kind of mourn for something. Okay. I mourn for like the feeling of of certainty that, uh, that I just, I don't have anymore.
0: Yeah. That that really like struck a chord with me. Um, And I think it, it works like with the more general public at large too. like a lot of, Growing up, um, not even necessarily just in a religious experience, in a religious sense, but, like, a lot of growing up is sort of like, oh, I have all these sort of assumptions about the world, you know, maybe the world is fair, maybe good things will happen if you're nice to people or, you know, whatever sort of, like, naive things that you can, you know, justify to yourself as a kid and then you get older and it it is sort of like a, can I go back to, you know... <laughs> Just kind of, like, wordlessly, like, assuming that everything was going to be okay without having to, like, really consider, you know, the alternative. Um, but I, I I, think you do a good job on this record of blending a lot of hope in with uh, some of the more kind of, like, desolate songs. Um, you got the song about uh, the hardworking honeybees um, of Dorster County. Yeah. Um, which works as a great, uh, you know, labor metaphor. Yeah. So <laughs> we're living in a world where we have to worry about the literal death of honeybees and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And, uh, you made to keep everything still sort of in a balance. So it's not just a doomer record, you know, um, right. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And that one, um, that was, that was pegged to a very specific news item down here, uh, Dorchester County, South Carolina, which is where I grew up. Um, I had to go back and look at the, the timestamp on this. So we're at this April, 2017. And, um, so there are a bunch of beekeepers in Dorchester County, uh, and including this one place called Bee City, that's, um, sort of a, an agritourism place. Like they, they make honey out there and sell it, but it's also like a place you go on school field trips and there's a petting zoo and all that. So, um, yeah, back in 2017, there was a mosquito abatement program that it's kind of, it's, it's run the same way in a lot of counties where, uh, especially out in more rural areas, the, the county will hire people people in crop duster planes to fly over and you know spray this anti-mosquito um, kind of mist, and um, it's uh, it's also toxic to certain plants and animals. Uh, depending on the you know the variety they're using, it can kill honeybees. So uh, normally, when the county is getting ready to do that, they'll they have a a list of people that they call to give them a heads up, you know, a day in advance or something, and say, "Hey, we're going to be spraying. You need to bring bring your bees in and just wait this out." Uh, for whatever reason that spring in Dorchester County, somebody didn't call any of the beekeepers in Dorchester County. And so it was like this mass death event, like um, hundreds of thousands of bees died and um, you know, it was a serious, uh, a serious loss for these beekeepers and for Bee City. Um, but also, yeah, like, like you said, it's, it, it was at a moment where we were realizing how important bees were um, that if we keep doing things like this, then we will have no food and uh, things will, things will go downhill quickly. Um, so yeah. Yeah. You're I'm glad you've thought of it as a, as a labor song too. Cause it was also that like us. Yeah. listening to some like uh, Pete Seeger songs and kind of um, thinking about uh, the, the, the fact that workers create all value, you know, whether they're uh, people, workers or, honeybee workers.
0: Hell yeah, that that's awesome. I, I didn't know that story. Uh, I mean, that's tragic. And that's something that, you know, we're gonna be getting used to the next couple of decades. I, I was just uh, talking to my parents and they have an apple orchard in the upstate. And um, luckily for them, they're both retired now and it's not like their main livelihood. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people in their area, it is like, it's the main thing that they do for money is raise apples. And, um, just with all of the like climate catastrophe this year, some of the apple farmers were like trimming their apple trees, like in the middle of the season. Cause it was just not worth, uh, you know, harvesting that year hmm. and, um, this year and yeah, it's, it's grim seeing those little tiny, Pockets of one species or two species going on. Um, but yeah, I guess we're all honeybees in the, the Pete Seeger sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, we're all in that together.
0: So um, if, if you're down with uh, doing some, some more deep diving into some of these songs, um, I was wondering what was sort of the uh, background for Hydrilla and how did that come come about because that was one that really stuck out to me with that um I'm, i'm interested in the genesis of
1: yeah so that was um it was based on some some things i was reading about the uh the natural springs in florida so like i don't know if you've ever been to any of the like florida state parks where they'll have natural springs swimming holes and that kind of thing you ever spend any time down there
0: um i I think I've driven by them and taken pictures, but I've, I haven't really spent any time
1: so i I think the first time I went to one it was probably it was at a friend's bachelor party. um we were staying at a friend's house down in um, St Augustine, and then uh he knew of a this state park that was way way inland in the woods. He had to like drive miles through um these pine tree. Forests, and then uh, you uh, you pull up into this state park where there's just this pristine, um, clear blue water, natural spring, and it's just like this aquifer constantly bubbling up out of the earth. And um, so we went there and swam in it, and it's like this constant, really chilly temperature year round, and um, you know some of them feed into. Uh, bodies of water that that manatees come into during the winter and it's like uh really one of the great nat- natural treasures in this country and um so yeah i just had this this really beautiful memory of visiting this place with some friends and just spending the day there and um and then uh you know a little time passed um the uh my friend's wedding got called off. Um, some of our friends had a falling out. Um, and like that memory was still really sweet to me. Uh, but um, you know, anytime I thought of it, any, anytime I thought of that place, I thought of how um, we couldn't actually go back and how um, things are not the same anymore. Um, so uh it was partly a reflection on that and then also partly a reflection on the springs themselves, which are, um, by and large being corrupted and polluted by human activity. Um, so, uh, there've been a bunch of studies in the past few years kind of looking at what's happened to them. And a lot of it is due to agricultural runoff, um, because you know, Florida is a breadbasket you know, we grow a lot of things there, but it's also you know runoff from cattle farms, runoff from like lawn treatments you know people want to keep their lawns just like as green as a golf green and some of those chemicals are uh, leaching into the springs and um, polluting them so um it's it's led to the the killing off of a lot of species um a lot of these like Springs that were clean enough to drink out of are now um, murky and clouded and um, no longer healthy. It's threatening the water, drinking water supply for a lot of places. Um, And uh, the name hydrilla comes from an invasive species of plant that, um, mm, I might be getting this wrong, but I think it was one of those things that was brought in as an, as an ornamental plant in Florida. And then someone let it loose kind of like a lot of the, you know, the weird exotic reptiles that run wild in the Everglades now, like there, there are some plants too that people have just brought in that propagated. And hydrilla is one of those green water surface plants that will just cover everything like a mat. And it blocks out the sunlight that would normally go to the native plants further down. And it just sort of wreaks havoc on a whole ecosystem. So um, yeah, I was, I was writing about the sort of, the loss of some really precious places um and also mourning for the loss of uh just a a specific time in my life and um some some friendships that I wish I still had
0: wow yeah that that's intense yeah it's kind of like the 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 sense memory of the place is like forever you know kind of haunted by the the social relations around it and by the you know the for lack of a better term plant colonization of it um i know uh there was a documentary that came out probably three years ago um called unknown and it's about unknown texas which is like on the border of like texas and louisiana mm-hmm. and it's like, this really tiny town there's like a few hundred people that live there and basically um the only thing really bringing in money is tourism for these um, kind of like swampy rivers and stuff that people fish. And um, it might be hydrilla. It might be another species, but it's the same story. It's uh, making it like impassable by boat. And so the town is basically like their tourism industry's died up. Um, it was the only thing keeping them going. And it's just, you know, and they're mm-hmm. trying to make some last ditch efforts to, To sort of stop this uh, environmental degradation before it like basically forces them all out of the area.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it, you know, it's 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 easy to sort of like cast villains in stories like that. Um, But in some cases, these are honest mistakes. You know, like, um, you know, people brought all kinds of flora and fauna here just because they thought it was nice and we didn't know any better. And um, yeah, then it just ripples out and causes disaster. That's hard to mitigate.
0: Yeah. If you uh, like go to a pet store and buy a fish and then you buy a tank and then they say, Hey, we have this live plant that you can put in your tank and then you, the fish dies and you dump the tank in the water behind your house you know, you can't really blame people for not being fully educated. So it's hard. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, And I I guess a a postlude to that is I actually did get to go back to one of the springs this, this year. Um, My family and I have been camping a lot and uh, Mm. yeah, we took our kids down to, I want to say it was silver spring, but um, yeah, there, there are still some natural springs there that are just, gorgeous and untouched. And, um, yeah, the, the kids swim in it. I was, I was kind of too chicken. It's, 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 I mean, it's like 71 or 72 degrees. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to stay in there, but, um, yeah, it was beautiful. And we got a canoe and paddled down the river and saw some otters and like, yeah, there's still so much beauty in the the interior of Florida that, um, I don't know. It was, it was really sweet to go back and kind of make a new memory there.
0: Awesome. Yeah, awesome. Well, um, you've been doing a lot of uh, writing soon. Uh, I know you have a book coming out too, um, and we could we could talk about that in a little bit. But um, did you ever, you know, you're, you're a journalist, you worked for Post and Courier for a long time. Now you have uh, this excellent, super regular uh, Brutal South um, outpouring. Did you ever think about doing, uh, music journalism? Was that ever sort of on your, your radar?
1: I did. And I I did some of it. Um, so yeah, my my first full-time job after college was at the Charleston city paper, which was, uh, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. sort of like the free times was in Columbia, just the, the, the all weekly. And, um, it was a real small staff and I was the staff writer. So, um, yeah, I was on every beat. So I did, I did a lot of music writing when I could. And um, yeah, I, I, I always really loved it. I I loved interviewing artists and um, kind of learning about new, new movements in music and get to interview shovels and rope early on when they were like, just starting to really break into national success. And um, yeah, I, I still really, really cherish a lot of those stories. I'm so really proud of what I was able to do. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever saw that as my full-time vocation, but I, I loved it when I could, uh, when I could do it. My, um, God, probably my, my, my greatest wish fulfillment was from childhood was that I got to interview Weird Al one time when I was at the city paper. I had like, <laughs> when, uh, when I took the job, I, they said, okay, you're going to do some of the news, the music coverage sometimes. And I said, okay, I call dibs if Weird Al Yankovic ever comes to town because he was my childhood idol. And, uh, yeah, so I got to talk to Weird Al. So that That's was amazing. A, yeah, that was one of those moments of just life coming full circle. And yeah, he was really sweet, really nice to talk to. <laughs> like he's, I'm sure he's talked to thousands of people over the years, but just like, uh, was was very patient with my questions and very thoughtful. So that was that was a big highlight for me for sure. Yeah, he's always seemed like a kind,
0: kind guy uh in interviews and stuff like that. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I I've enjoyed uh what music writing I've read of yours. Um and a lot of it was sort of not not like Rolling Stones, not like reviewing an album or something like that a lot of it was more of uh sort of like providing some context and a story and stuff like that um which I th- I think tracks in with everything else you're doing um but uh so you're you're done with USC you're doing Charleston City Paper for a while um which like you said super cool like the free times which unfortunately uh just got taken over by uh I think probably your next yeah. is. <laughs> <place in> <laughs> yep. Um a post and courier. And uh so one thing that I always uh really thought was interesting and really liked that you did um when you were at post and courier, I think towards the end, um you had very open discussions on Twitter about uh like your labor for that. And um, you know passion versus stability versus income versus hours worked and stuff like that. Um, So what was sort of your, what was your intention um, with starting those conversations and what was sort of the reaction that you got uh, when you were at Post and Courier and talking about those things?
1: Yeah, I think those are, those are definitely worthwhile conversations to have whatever your profession is, you know? Um, I think Um, in my particular workplace, there was a real problem with, um, people being overworked and taken advantage of. And, um, some of that came down to the fact that we were all passionate about what we did. Um, you know, people get into journalism because they believe in the cause of, you know, finding the truth of, you know, writing things that are wrong, um. And as a result, sometimes they feel pressured to work off the clock or, um, you know, keep keep going at a job where they're not being paid enough to get by. Um, so, I mean, I, I looked around me and I, you know, I was, I made it eight years in the industry and um, there were people who would come to work at the paper and were working full time and then some and also had to wait tables or like, you know, deliver Uber eats. And it was like this thing that we had all, you know, gone and gotten degrees for and dedicated ourselves to was not a profession in a material sense. It was something that we did, but, um, was not, um, wasn't paying us enough to constitute a whole career. So yeah, it was a real concern. Um, it was a personal concern because I had kids and uh, it was getting harder and harder to kind of get by on what they paid us. So um, yeah, I, did, I just believed in being transparent about that. Um, I remember right toward the end, I I was part of a team that did this big investigative report on some of the Um, structural injustices and deliberate underminings of South Carolina's public education system. Uh, It was called minimally adequate. And um, we were up for this big award from the, what was it called? It 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 was like this national association of education reporters. So a couple of us got to go to a big conference in Baltimore and we ended up winning you know, one of the biggest, most prestigious awards that year for education reporting. And they asked if we would say something and like, neither of us knew we were supposed to give a speech. And I ended up just talking about, um, one, like how good it felt to write about South Carolina education as a product of South Carolina education, who was now sending his kids into South Carolina schools. Um, but two, I I kind of noted the irony that while I was out, interviewing teachers and other people's kids, it meant spending a lot of time away from my own wife and kids, you know? Um, And, uh, I think a lot of people seemed like, uh, a lot of people said something to me about it afterward, like, especially, um, women who had children and were trying to do this job. Um, you know, I, I think women especially are expected to, uh, do the full-time job of their profession, but also be a full-time parent and, um, the hours are not there and it, uh, it wears you down and makes you feel guilty. Uh, so I don't know. Those were some of the conversations I was having kind of in, in my last year at the paper. Um, and, uh, yeah, there was no, there was no happy resolution to that. Things did not get better there. Um, And most of the people I knew at the paper who were my age have moved on, um, you know, either to a different city, changed careers entirely. It's just, it's not a, um, it's not a viable career path for almost anyone now.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, it's good to hear you, you struck a chord with people. Um, And it, yeah, it's, uh probably not good for anybody that journalism independent journalism is not a viable career path um just at at large i feel like that is probably a a bad sign
1: um yeah that's a net loss for everyone yeah (laughs) it's yeah it's pretty grim yeah
0: i know um you hear about it all over the place i i think um in the last year or so maybe two years i know um denver lost like i think it was like one of the biggest like alternative like independently owned um like newspapers uh like in the in the country and they just after a long back and forth uh lost it to one of the come 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 you know i'm trying to say one of the big corporations um i Um, think
1: they sold to alden global capital one of the sort of notorious vampire hedge funds that just uh yeah just uses them for parts and then throws them away.
0: Yeah, that's, that's hard. Um, did any, uh, have you, have you seen any industries where that sort of, um, I'll call it labor organizing, but I guess more specifically like labor organizing via making opaque information more transparent. Um, is there a model of that, you know, either, either in existence or in theory, um, that might, might be able to turn those kind of things around.
1: Well, um, I think a a basic thing anybody can do is talk to your coworkers about pay, just be open about what you make. Um, and usually that, that's on you to, uh, open up first to, you know, like, if, if I go up to my coworker and say, Hey, what are you making here? Um, it's going to come across as offensive. Whereas if I say, here's what I make, what do you make? Like it's a, it's a shared vulnerability and um, it's the only way to find out if we're being treated equally Um, and to find out like how each of us struggles. Um, So, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I made 27,000 a year when I started working full time at city paper uh, by the end of it, I was making 38000 in my last year at the Post and Courier. And like, I was better off than a lot of people in this county. Um, but like, it's an expensive place to live. And um, yeah, that to put it in perspective, that's at the time, that was what a first year public school teacher made here in the county. So um, I, it took me a lot of sort of scrapping to get to what for other professions is the starting line. And um, yeah, so I think just being honest with each other is, is important. Um, I don't know. I, I think um, teachers are one sector that have a lot of power when they, when they realize it and when they, when they recognize their shared interests. Um, I think one of the most one of the most inspiring labor movements I've seen in the last decade was the um, what was sometimes called the, the red state wave of, of teacher strikes, which were um, movements of teachers either doing walkouts or strikes in um, Republican-controlled states, um, often over lack of funding or, um, you know, poor working conditions or poor pay, and, um, and one of the early states was west virginia which does actually have a, a pretty strong tradition of labor you know, teacher labor unions but it also happened and sort of wildcat strikes in places like oklahoma and arizona where this happened without any formal union structure it was just um tens of thousands of teachers getting together in like facebook groups usually and recognizing that their their labor had power, and they could exercise it by withholding it. Um, and they they won some important victories that way.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I I know you uh, you do a lot of reporting on um on the the labor the teacher labor movement uh, in the South, and it, for stuff like that, when you hear about it, it's so hard to sort of put it in perspective um, of like what what big changes are actually being made, what concessions are small or, you know, kind of like token concessions and stuff like that. Um, so do you, do you think that that really like uh, made a like material difference for teachers in the South?
1: It did in some States. I mean, um, not, not as much in the South, but certainly in you know West Virginia and Arizona, I think those are pretty, pretty good case studies for like, yeah. I mean, teachers got significant pay increases. Um, and they also, I think more importantly for the long run, um, recognized one, their strength, but also they recognized who their enemies were. Um, so, you know, the, the teachers in, uh, West Virginia realized that, um, the sort of fossil fuel lobby was, um, not on their side that, the fossil fuel lobby was going to uh, claw back whatever the state took from it in taxes. And so they knew who to fight. Um, Yeah. I I think by taking bold moves like that, it it makes it clearer. uh, You know, like the old song goes, which side you are on, you know, (laughs) which side are you on? Um, And you have to, you have to decide. So I, yeah, I, I think, Across the South, maybe not so much. I think a lot of education politics happens at the state level. So, um, you know, places like South Carolina and North Carolina did have teacher movements, but um, they did not reach the sort of like fever pitch of some of these other states. They didn't have any massive walkouts. Um, But, um, you know, we do have groups like SC for Ed in South Carolina that that exist now because of that. Sort of movement. They, they they saw momentum in other states and and recognized that they had power. Um, so they're still here and they're still doing really important work. So I, I think that kind of built an important important infrastructure here for sure.
0: Yeah, I, I dev- that's super interesting, and uh, it definitely rings true what you're saying. You're you're basically forcing the opponents of education to sort of go on record with their spending. I'd be like, oh, these are the people that are actively spending money against education. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's hard to hard to uh you know ideologically sort of hide that when that's going on.
1: Right. Um, or like our governor in South Carolina trying to funnel you know emergency COVID funding that was meant for public schools, he tried to like divert 32 million of that to private schools. And it's just like um you know once people are there to call him on it 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 becomes pretty obvious what he's doing, yeah, someone should write a song about all that, <laughs> yeah <laughs> I haven't written a lot of like exp- expressly political songs I, I there are a few in there, but um, yeah that's that's kind of a new thing for me. That's funny because I read
0: kind of political statements into a lot of your stuff, um which you know not not that they're explicitly political or anything like that. Um that sort of brings me to uh you in the last 12 to 18 months um because time is a flat circle yeah. uh released a really cool uh short story and you did a um, instrumental soundtrack for it. Oh um, yeah. Do you want to do you want to talk about that and sort of your motivation um and then sort of is are there many precedents for people writing like literary fiction, and then doing their own recordings of soundtracks for the audiobooks. Like, was there? That's all to say, was there a inspiration for that, or is that just something that just kind of came to you as something you could do?
1: Oh, there are probably probably people who've done it. Um, I don't know. I don't actually listen to a lot of audiobooks. I usually I usually sit and read, you know, printed books. But um, yeah, that was. A, I don't know. I I wanted to try writing fiction and just publishing it on my own because I'm sort of impatient and I I just don't have the, uh, follow through to write a story, send it off to like 15 different magazines and wait for rejection letters. So yeah, I got a little impatient with this, this story I'd written called charity that, um, yeah, I just decided I would, I would publish it in parts through the newsletter and then, yeah, make a, make a little audio book. Um, and I think i I wanted to have a soundtrack to it, and I had just gotten in the mail a uh, this this little tiny guitar amplifier that uh comes in an Altoids ten. Have you ever seen those before? yeah, I've seen those those are awesome yeah, and I just thought it was a lot of fun, and it's you know really simple i mean you just you it doesn't have any switches or knobs and you just turn the volume up on your guitar to make it louder and more distorted. And that's that. And, um, yeah, so I was just, I I think I was playing around with the, the chord progression from, um, St. James infirmary blues, um, which is one of those like old songs that's been covered like 4,000 times. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was just sort of noodling on that. And I, I, uh, I set the, the little tiny amp up in the bathroom to make it echo more and just, uh, yeah, took pieces of that for the soundtrack. So um, yeah, I I was pretty happy with how it, how it turned out. I don't know. Did you make it to the end of that thing? Yeah, I thought it was awesome.
0: I'm I'm with you. I would normally read something over listen to it. Uh, But when I heard that it had a self-made soundtrack, I of course had to listen to it. And I, yeah, I thought it was excellent. I thought it was super like moody and really added to it.
1: Yeah. Thanks man. Yeah. It, um, yeah. I'm, I'm glad it turned out the way it did. It was, it was pretty labor intensive. I don't know if I'll do it again just cause it, it took a while and then, you know, you have to read your own writing out loud and uh, reckon with your own vocal ticks and take out every time you flub a word or stutter or something. So it, it was sort of a it was sort of a long process but um I wanted to try it and I was glad I was able to put it out there like that for sure And that story was uh, something I'd, I'd been working on off and on for years like uh, it's, it's a story about an AC repairman in a um, a really hot swampy southern town and I think I started working on it. In the summer when my wife was pregnant with our, our girls. So we had we had twins first. And uh so we were getting ready to have two babies and like overworked and stressed. And also one of our cars broke down that summer, and also our air conditioning broke like nine times <laughs> while my my wife was like super pregnant in this just like painfully hot climate and uh Yeah, I was just—we kept having to get this this poor repair guy to come over and and fix it over and over again, and he couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with it. And um, yeah, that was sort of the genesis for the story. Was just uh, that—I don't (laughs) know—it's just a really hot, difficult summer.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely something. Growing up in the South, everybody can imagine those days where the, the AC unit dies and you're just like at someone else's mercy and then compound that with, you know, the poverty of the South mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's really moving. And it's about sort of a a, a, a mutual aid sort of without, uh, you know, any sort of like academic theory or anything, just sort of a, a natural mutual aid that arises among poor people and, um, in a, in a community.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's an, it's an interesting way to look at it. Cause I, at the, at the time I started writing it, I hadn't really heard of mutual aid. I, you know, I didn't read a lot of theory or anything. Um, but I, I did know a lot about, uh, sort of notions of, of Christian charity, which, um, can be a beautiful thing, but can also be a source of a lot of guilt, um, and yeah, I wanted to kind of talk about the the feeling of receiving charity and how um, when the community around you knows you're hurting and tries to help out, sometimes it can feel deeply shameful. Um, like, like you're living in a glass house, everybody sees what's going on in your life. And um, yeah, ab, absent an uh, a sort of ethos of mutual aid and um yeah, just like mutual care. It, it, it can feel to a prideful person, like a moral failing to accept charity from someone else.
0: Yeah. I feel like that feeling has got to be instilled <laughs> by some external forces. Cause it, yeah. I, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's something people are born with. So you you wrote this short story, and um, you said it's not worth dealing with the publishing and all of this, and uh, that does seem like a huge headache. But uh, you do have a book coming out uh, via a publisher um, sometime in the future. Yeah. (laughs) So what's the story kind of uh, behind that? Um, Obviously, it ties into the uh, the weekly uh writings you've been doing um but what, what was sort of the, the process to get started on the, the brutal south book
1: yeah yeah it's gonna be a long project um and I'm, I'm glad to do it you know with a proper editor and you know so i'm still lining some of that up for sure so it's it's a lot of it's not set in stone but um yeah so i i'm interested in brutalist architecture which is uh basically large concrete buildings that are made hulking for um, aesthetic reasons rather than strictly functional ones. So like a giant concrete warehouse doesn't count. It's more like um, like Boston city hall or like in Columbia, the, the, the big federal building downtown, you know, just like um, places with like a lot of sharp angles and dramatic shadows um that's that's sort of brutalism and it was never a it was never a school of architecture per se it was like a lot of sort of modernists around the mid-20th century did it but um there's not really a hard and fast definition because most people never really called themselves brutalists it's just sort of a you know it, it was like it was like a term that architecture critics slapped onto something they noticed happening. Um, so, yeah, I, that's my, uh, sort of niche interest that has like a weirdly devoted following online. Like if you, when you meet other people who are into brutalism, it's like, uh, you know, you, you know, you're among like-minded <laughs> souls and it's like this, it's this weird sort of, uh, community of one just like architecture nerds like people who just like thinking about interesting architectural ideas but there's also an overlap with a lot of um like socialists people on the left who associate it with a lot of social housing projects um especially in the UK and then some you know in in Soviet countries and you know ex-Soviet countries that you know some of the most prominent buildings were built um for the social good um so yeah there there is this uh this sort of built-in fan base of like-minded weirdos who who like this style and um it was actually i I think my friend gardner who who has played bass with me over the years was the first person to kind of turn me on to this and he just you know sent me someone's like, I don't know, it was a Reddit post like 10 years ago of just interesting buildings from that style. And, um, and I started looking around and recognizing things that I had seen for years that were pretty good examples of brutalism, but that were not widely known outside of the South. So, um, you know, we, we have some pretty monumental buildings, um, Especially in South Florida, um, some in Texas, and then just, like, scattered across the region. We, we have, like, significant works of art just in the, you know, in the cityscape. Um, and while there is, like, a pretty good body of, of literature out there about this style, it usually emphasizes, like, the UK, or if someone's writing about... United States architecture, they'll, they'll talk about like the, the American Northeast. Cause that's, you know, the schools of architecture that did a lot of this were like Yale and kind of that, that area. Um, and yet there is a lot of it still surviving, um, where I grew up and, um, it can be sort of incongruous. It doesn't, you know, it sure doesn't feel like a distinctively Southern style, but, um, yeah, I just became really interested in how, um, some of these pieces of architecture fit into the landscape and like how they came about historically. And, um, there's just, as far as I can tell, nobody's done like a long considered project about that at the regional level. So I wanted to try, I wanted to work with photographers to get really interesting images of some of these places. Um, so I applied for a grant from the South Carolina arts commission and I got it. So, it was through, uh, it was actually through the city of Charleston. They, they do like a quarterly arts grant program. So I'm using that to hire some photographers, pay them up front and, uh, yeah, get the ball rolling on this, uh, just this weird, weird project that I'm going to be stewing on for years probably. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's been a really joyful process of discovery.
0: That's great. I, I know you're in the, the early sort of stages of putting everything together, um, but do you do you think there's any sort of like thesis emerging? Um, I know you've been writing about brutalism for a while. Uh, is there any sort of like central, uh, it, maybe thesis is like too academic, but maybe like something that is like this is what brutalism in the South is, or this is what it's not, or you know something like that. Um.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think there are definitely some themes. Um, I don't know if there's any one, but I, I think you know, one theme would be that, um, brutalism is often used as a, like a, an architectural sort of vocabulary to con- to convey permanence. Um, and so like in places that needed to rebuild a, uh, you know, a, a hulking imposing building could kind of convey some sense of strength. So, um, colombia uh was was a place that sort of needed to rebuild in the 20th century that you know colombia was burned to the ground entirely um for uh for its sins um so uh yeah when they rebuilt some of the some of the things came back looking very sort of um stoic and heavy um there's there's a there's an example near my house. It's a it's a it's a building that was a, built as an office on the Navy Yard in North Charleston, that um, explicitly, according to the plans, was built to sort of convey um, strength during the Cold War. And it was, uh, you know, there are people in there working on plans for nuclear submarines, and so it was this building that was also a political statement um, and depending how you see it even like a, a piece of propaganda you know a way of conveying um, national strength um, which I reject you know i'm not I'm not like a fan of all this but like I, I do want to study what it means um, but I think I, another another piece I want to look at is how um Concrete buildings get built to withstand some of the extreme weather here. Um, so, some of the you know brutalist buildings in South Florida, you know, they they were made to withstand hurricanes that happen all the time and are now happening more than ever. Um, and yet, uh, you know, as as solid as they look, if they're not done well, they can actually be uh, dangerously unstable. So, you know, there, there was a, there was a pretty famous condo tower collapse in the last year that was not brutalist, but certainly a like rebar reinforced concrete building that seemed like it would last forever. Um, but because of some like construction workarounds and, and some bad maintenance, um, collapsed all at once and killed a lot of people. Um, so yeah, I, I think in, in writing this, um, there are some books and some, you know, like fan websites out there that kind of like, just uncritically just say like, yay, brutalism. <laughs> and people get defensive about it because, you know, like fascists hate it at, at, at this current political moment, like Trump tried to ban it, but like, I don't want to unambiguously say it's just a great thing. We should all celebrate it. Like, um, it's, uh, you know, architecture is a language that can be used for a lot of things, um, some of which I find repugnant. Um, so, yeah, I just want to consider it and kind of look at how it's been used here uh, and you know, across the spectrum.
0: Yeah, I, I think definitely architecture is definitely like probably the most like politically active um form of art and that it's like literally shapes like cities and like relations between people and stuff um and you were talking about sort of the the imposing nature of the uh the down by the down by the pier near you um and you mentioned the fed building in columbia and i actually remember the first time i saw that building uh my wife Uh, was a singer at Trinity Episcopal and i to like park far away because it was like some big concert they were doing. And I parked like basically in front, right in front of that building. And I got in my car, I looked up, I was like, I kind of feel like I'm having a heart attack or something. (laughs) um, And I think a lot of like brutalism is beautiful, but like the, the fed building is like very imposing, very sort of like, like prison, like very like, uh, brazil by terry gilliam kind of yeah yeah um, but in the same vein i don't know if you'd call it brutalism but um what's his name uh corbosier however you say it he had some buildings that were like vaguely brutalist and they were basically meant to reinforce communities and uh have people share like larger portions of their daily routines with their neighbors um and that's you know kind of a, a beautiful thing so it's interesting that it and like you said, like some of the brutalism was made to be like a very like capitalist, imperialist, American thing. But then also the fascists don't like it. So,
1: yeah, currently. <laughs> it's, a, it's a confusing.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah and, it, you know, it's gone both ways. I mean, Italian fascists, you know, kind of liked a certain type of architecture that was like brutalism. You know, it's uh, yeah. It's not inherently fascists. It's, it's not inherently, um, you know socialists it's uh yeah it, it can be used for all types of things and yeah and yeah definitely le corbusier is is definitely like uh he's considered an early kind of forerunner of the style um yeah he, he influenced a lot of people um one of my favorite buildings i've been obsessing over is actually uh a chapel in um in tuskegee that was modeled after a le corbusier chapel in france um, so he has this famous one that has like this sort of huge sweeping, um, parabolic roof. It's like this, this wave of concrete on top of it. And, um, it's like, I've seen yeah. that
0: one. Yeah, that's great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's this beautiful work of art. And, um, so one of the one of the most famous architects who used brutalism or what we would call brutalism in his style, uh, was uh, Paul Rudolph, who was from the South. He was from Kentucky. And, uh, yeah, he got commissioned to design a new, um, a new chapel for Tuskegee university after the original burned down, um, kind of suspiciously actually during the civil rights era. Like there was speculation that, um, you know, white supremacists burned it down it was never proven, but, you know, he got called into this like pretty monumental task to replace what was an iconic church on this, this historically black college campus. And, um, yeah, his, his early renderings were very obviously, uh, set, sort of paraphrasing what Corbusier did. Um, and he wanted to do it in concrete until, you know, people in Tuskegee said, well, no, you have to use brick. Like this is, um, like all the buildings on campus or a lot of them are, are made from brick. A lot of them were like, you know, the the bricks were made by students historically who, who like built this place with their bare hands. And so like to respect the environment and to build something particular to this place, it has to be red brick. And so like the the end result is this, um, really gorgeous red building that has still has the sweeping concrete roof over it, but that is mostly just, uh, the red brick and the style of, of the place and um yeah I'm, I'm when i when i get my ducks in a row i'm planning a road trip and i, I want to go there i want to hear people sing there um because I, I think that's like a really beautiful way that this international style that you could find anywhere was made particular and local and was was made to fit in the place where it was built
0: yeah, that's awesome. That that sort of respect uh, is so important. I know you know you're you're in Charleston, and they have a very unique sort of building style. Um, and it, it's hard when you know gentrification is happening and big developers are coming in and sort of like changing like the overall look of a neighborhood or something. Um, I saw recently where there's all these houses in New Orleans that are being uh, I think they called it graging which is like a portmanteau of gray and beige. And oh. they're just taking all these like beautiful old houses that were like sea green or like a ruby color or something. And they're just like painting them these like kind of like off white, like grayish.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah. it. Sort
0: of like erasing, like some of like how the, the city itself feels. Um yeah. Which is crazy. So it's cool to, it's cool to respect that. Um And keep some sort of tradition going for the future, but also do new cool stuff on top of it. Yeah. Um, Which I guess uh, if you've got time for one last uh, sort of line of, of questioning, I guess that sort of uh, brings me into the last thing I want to talk to you about. And that is um, you have a song on the new record and it has some, uh, presumably your children. (laughs) (laughs) uh sort of talking and laughing over the end of it and um i would i just want to know sort of like what what's the message behind that um what's the message uh of like what your your kids represent to you um what you think the you know the future generations um you know have to i don't know what 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 are some, some positive uh, things in our future we can look forward to?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There are definitely a few times on there where you can hear them and uh, it's all kind of out of order. I didn't or- organize this chronologically. So like, you know, one song you'll hear my son talking to me in complete sentences. And then the next song, you know, there'll, he'll be like cooing cause he's a baby. So it's kind of jarring that way, but like, none of that was added in deliberately. You know, I didn't go record my kids and then add that as a second track on top. It was just like, uh, I don't know, there aren't a lot of quiet moments here. So it, when, when I have an idea for a song, I just sit down and I record it with the materials I've got. And, you know, sometimes one or all of the kids are in the room with me and so be it. Um, so yeah, I, um, I think a common thing with a lot of these songs was that I wrote them, you know, I wrote them in a little notebook. I did a little demo recording on my phone or my little, you know, interview recording mic or whatever I had thinking that, you know, one day I'm going to come back and I'll sit down in a studio with my friends and I'll, I'll you know, flesh this out into something more polished. And um, in some cases we did, you know, like we we've put out – two EPs in a full length album that were polished that way. And I'm glad we did, but, um, I still had this residue of like dozens of songs that I just had these home recordings. And, um, I think in making this, I, um, I partly just wanted to sort of clear the shop floor and say like, I'm getting these out so that I can just, sort of allow myself to write new things again. Um, But in doing so, I wanted to be honest about how it was made. Um, And yeah, like a lot of times it was either in the middle of the night, you know, when everybody else was sleeping, uh, or it was just with everybody around, you know? And like, so you'll you'll hear stuff going on. And um, yeah, my kids are um, not an intrusion they're I mean, they are my life. And so like ev- anything I do, I do like with or around or because of them. Um, so yeah, it just, it just felt honest to leave them in there, you know, <laughs> like, um, yeah, I think one of the, one of the sweetest parts of this, this album for me is, um, there's a, there are a couple Christmas songs and, um, you know, they're, they're talking about the birth of Jesus. And, um, early on in one of them, you can hear one of the kids, um, crying cause they're, they're, you know, they're a baby and they were just, just getting off to sleep. And they, they, you know, you, you hear them kind of fuss a little and then quiet down. And, um, that's where we were. Um, and that's, you know, they are central to my life. And, uh, you know, maybe in a few years, some of them will, Get, get interested, pick up an instrument, and we'll, we'll record some songs together. But for now, it's just, um, you know, it, life is very noisy. And uh, if I waited for a quiet moment to get things perfect, I would I would never make it at all. I just, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't make the song at all. So uh, I decided to put it out there as it is. Beautiful.
0: Well, Paul, I really appreciate you uh, spending so much time Talking to me tonight. Um your your record's coming out on Bandcamp. Do you have a date or anything?
1: Yeah, I, I, October 5th. That's when I'm gonna put it out there. And uh yeah, it'll just be at camellias.bandcamp.com. Camellia is like the flower, uh, not the reptile. And uh yeah, it'll be I, I decided to put it out there as a like a pay what you want thing. So you can stream it for free there. Uh if you if you want to download it, you can. Uh, you can like leave me a tip if you want or not. It's just, uh, you know, since this isn't a, uh, a very polished final product, I didn't want to charge people like, you know, proper album money for this, this, uh, this weird collection of songs. So, uh, yeah, I'm just going to put it out there.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm sure people will be excited to hear it. Thanks, Paul.
1: Thanks, man.